take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. We're going to end our series of messages on living a fearless life and kind of do it in a summary way with general ideas about how to live without fear. I uh, was thinking this week about silly fears that people have. Uh, in fact, uh, it started last weekend. I went into uh, Alan Searcy's Sunday school class, and some of you were in there, and on the board he had listed some crazy fears. And so this is the way I thought we'd start this morning, and this is going to take your participation to help me out here. I want you to tell me something kind of crazy you're scared of. Dragonflies. Is that, a, is that a Norman tradition or just you? Just her. All right. Somebody else. The dark. I appreciate you manning up and being able to admit that this morning. Over here I heard one. Snakes. Well, that's not crazy. Everybody will be scared of snakes. That's. But snakes. Anything else? What? Drowning in a car. Cindy, that's an elaborate fear there. <laughs> Bridges in general. Spiders. Close spaces. We have a member on our staff that will remain nameless that refuses to ride the elevators around here because of that close space fear, right? Fears. Anybody? Birds. Clowns. That's a good ender there. Clowns. You know, some fears are kind of silly and don't really affect us, right? I mean, it's not often that some fears that we have will come into our lives, but some fears can be fatal. Now, we've talked over the last few weeks about how that fear can be something that, that paralyzes us or creates us from inaction, but fear also can be something that really is dangerous. I read this week about an event that happened on March 3rd, 1943, at 8.17 in the evening. It happened in London, England, and at precisely 8.17, the air raid sirens started to go off. Now, it's hard for us to imagine what that felt like. But for people living in London at that time, when the air raid sirens went off, it meant take cover. Off of the distance, it was said that you could hear anti-aircraft artillery shooting into the night. And so shops began to clear out. Buses stopped. Cars were abandoned. People literally laid as low as they could on the ground to think they could get away from whatever was happening. And in one particular part of London, there was an underground that people were trying to get to. And it was told in this story that what happened is everybody seemed to get to the front of the underground to head downstairs at the exact same time. Any of you that have ever been part of a mad rush knows what it feels like when people begin to crush and get into a small space. And as they were trying to get in there, apparently a young mother carrying her child tripped on the top step and fell forward. And as she fell forward, she fell into a mass of people that started a domino effect of person after person falling one on top of the other. The chaos lasted for less than 15 minutes. 
but taking the bodies out of the mass took until midnight. In the end, 173 men, women, and children had died. Now here's the interesting thing about that story. That night, no bombs fell on London. No planes were flying overhead. It was a false alarm. Writing in the newspaper, one of the um, journalists in London wrote that fusillades or bombs didn't kill people tonight, but fear did. Somebody has said, fear loves a good stampede. Stampede. Fear's payday is blind panic, unfounded disquiet, and sleepless nights. And if you look around our world today, you see that fear's been making a pretty good living lately. How far do you have to go to hear the reminder, be afraid? How near is your next you are in trouble memo? Just a flip of the newspaper, a turn of the radio dial, a glance at the internet update? According to the media, the world is a scary place. If you remember, we started this series, that's been several weeks ago now, we started by me opening up a newspaper and reading headlines. Well, what's going to be interesting is, and I encourage the first service to do this, and I'll do this for you as well, is I'd like for you, in just in passing, to notice the headlines that are going to come out for local news in the next month. November is, in television world, sweeps month. It's the month when they see who's got the biggest viewers, and the people with the biggest viewers get to charge the biggest advertising rates. So it's very important. And if you notice, by the end of this week, they'll be promoting special series that come up in November. Things like the frightening truth about sitting in traffic. Did you know chocolate affects your IQ? How to avoid the danger you didn't even know was there. And tonight on Channel 5, what you may not know about the water you were drinking. You know those things, the, the scare tactics. It's always things you don't know, and it's always dangerous. Well, today as we kind of conclude this series, I just want to think about the world we live in and how we're going to face the future ahead, prepared to live no matter what fears may come. I, I read this week that the thing that people in America are most scared about is their health. I know there's a health care debate going on, but, you know, there's health issues going on all over. And listen to these numbers. It's kind of staggering. 59 million Americans have heart disease. 53 million have migraines. 25 have osteoporosis. 16 million struggle with obesity. 3 million have cancer. And 2 million have severe brain disorders. All those are very serious things. But here's the interesting number. It was recently reported that 543 million Americans consider themselves to be seriously sick. There's only one problem with that number. Anybody know what it is? There are not that many Americans. 543 million say we're seriously sick. There are only 300 million Americans. Garfield, in a cartoon once said, either our society's in terrible trouble or someone is seriously double-dipping. All right? And when it comes to that fear, that's what it sounds like. Psalm 23. Psalm 23 tells us how to cope with whatever fears may come. Something Coates said just a few minutes ago is true. I, I could not stand here today and go through every fear that you might have and say specifically, here's what you do. Because the Scriptures never teach us that the way to get over our fears is to somehow focus on that fear. 
It's not to say I'm attacking that fear. Whenever people in Scripture were afraid, there was always a promise about who God is or where He was to ensure them or assure them about the fact they could move forward without fear. And I could spend the next year every week saying, this is how you deal with this fear, and this is how you deal with that fear. But I don't think that Scripture was intended to be a specific how-to book. What it's intended to be is a book about who God is, and we understand who He is and where He is in our lives. It helps us to conquer whatever may come. And Psalm 23 is one of those great passages of Scripture that helps us to understand how to cope whatever may come. Now, here's the thing. Most of us are way too familiar with this psalm. Where do you hear this psalm most often? Funerals, right? This is the funeral psalm. Well, the truth is Psalm 23 was not written as a funeral psalm. There's some discussion about when David wrote this psalm, but uh, one of the best explanations I think you can see is that David wrote this psalm, or the way it's dated, towards the end of his life. Now, we all know David had a pretty good life, right? I mean, we talked a few weeks ago about the sin that he had, but David had a pretty good life. In fact, his reign as king of Israel is what they call the golden age of the kingdom, of Israel, of God's people. And so David had a good life, but there were moments of real difficulty, even after he became king, even after he consolidated power. And in fact, there are a lot of scholars that believe that David wrote this near the end of his life when his own son had rebelled against him and was trying to take his throne. One scholar kind of says that the picture that he might have is that David was sitting out away from the kingdom, uh, the castle, away from the temple, away from any residence. He was just out. And he was sitting on the side of the hill, and as he looked out, he saw sheep in the distance with a shepherd gently guiding them all around. And as he was thinking about all the problems that were in his life, all the difficulties that were happening, in his mind he just thought, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Three things that I want to give you this morning that any situation that comes up in your life, any fear that may pose itself as a threat, these three things will help you move through it from this psalm. First of all, you must trust the Lord. Whenever difficulty comes up in your life, the first thing you have to do is you have to trust the Lord. Now, I know that that sounds like, of course, that's what you're going to say. You're in church. We know we're supposed to trust the Lord. We know that's about what we're doing. But the truth is most of us never really trust the Lord. In fact, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, what God provides for us, one of the things it says there is that He provides for all our needs. And one of the difficulties we have as American Christians is God has so richly provided all of our needs that we never have a need to trust in Him. Or at least we think that. And so we have everything we need. Not everything we want, but we have everything we need. And so we don't ever understand what it is that God wants us to do in trusting him. I want you to see here in this first statement, the Lord is my shepherd, David tells us three things about the Lord. And the first is that the Lord is 
the one that we must depend on. How many of you have ever been around sheep? Anybody? I grew up in West Tennessee. Most of you know that. And I've told you I grew up in Dyersburg. That's not exactly true. Um, I really grew up in a suburb of a suburb of Dyersburg. All right? There was this little place outside of Dyersburg called Rowellen. But I don't tell a lot of people I grew up in Rowellen because you can't find Rowellen on Google Maps. It's not there. All right? But I grew up, and I didn't even grow up in Rowellen. I grew up on the outskirts of Rowellen. But even being a guy that grew up in a suburb of a suburb of Dyersburg, I went around sheep a whole lot. When I was in high school, I had a baseball coach that was determined to teach me how to hit a curveball. So he invited me out to his house, and he said, I'm going to teach you how to hit a curveball. I've got a batting cage out here. And when I got out of the car, I knew there was something different about this farm. That farm had sheep. Now, how did I know that farm had sheep? You can smell it, right? If you ever want to get just a small piece of that, there's a place uh, uh, about an hour north of here called Kentucky Down Under. Anybody ever been to Kentucky Down Under? And if you go to Kentucky Down Under, they have a sheep shearing barn. We walked into the sheep shearing barn recently, and Eli said, I think I'll just wait for you all outside. It did not smell good. So we watched the entire program with our nose, you know, held. Well, the thing about sheep are they're dumb. They're easily led. They are able to put into herds because they follow wherever you lead them, but they don't think for themselves. And the Scripture over and over again compares us to sheep. That's good to know, isn't it? And so it tells us that we're dumb and easily led. Well, the point here is that David says that's okay as long as the Lord is the one leading me. The Lord is my shepherd. It's an expression of dependence that I've depending completely upon Him. It's an expression of ownership that I am the Lord's. He owns my life. In the New Testament, it would say it this way. It would say that we are not our own. We have been bought with a price because of what Jesus has done. And it's an expression of a personal relationship. It's saying the Lord is my shepherd. He owns me. I'm dependent upon Him. And He is mine. Sometime this afternoon, sometime this week, I want you to go back and read Psalm 23. In reading Psalm 23, I want you to circle or underline in your Bible every time a personal pronoun is used. My, I, his. Because what happens here is they are identifying God as our personal Savior. Now, it tells us in that passage the result of us trusting in the Lord. And the first thing it tells us is that we have our needs completely fulfilled. Now, I want to make a a comment real quickly. It does not say, and I know that in the King James Version, I believe, it says, I shall not want, right? And you look at me right now and go, want? i got wants, all right? I've got a wish list. I've got a want list. I've got things that I want to have done. But the Scripture doesn't mean that we won't have wants. What it means is we will not have needs. And the truth is, none of us in this room have real needs, we don't. As much as we'd like to think we do, we don't. One of the things that always happens when we take a group of people overseas is that people immediately upon getting there say, I never realized how much I have. 
yesterday morning we were up here for breakfast before uh, we had a work day here at the church, and I was able to be here for a little bit before flag football yesterday, and we were sitting around the table, and, uh, and Bob Lloyd and Ben York just began, and uh, Randy Brooks were just beginning to share stories about the houses that we went in in Brazil. One house that was just basically a kind of roof stuck between two other buildings. The nicest houses that were there still incomparable to what we have. When we read a passage like it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He takes care of our needs. In the Old Testament, when they would name God, sometimes they would name Jehovah, and then they would put a name on the back end of that to describe him. And I couldn't help but think reading this about the name Jehovah Jireh, which is the Lord will provide. And the story that name comes out of. Anybody remember what story the name the Lord will provide comes out of? It's Abraham and Isaac. You remember that story? Abraham is told by God to take his son and to put him up on the altar and there to sacrifice him. And Abraham is getting everything ready. He's getting everything together. And his son looks at him and says, Hey, Dad, uh, i got a quick question for you. We, um, I, I see that we've got uh, all the wood and um, we've got something to start the fire with and we've got the knife that we need. But I just got one quick question. Um, where's the lamb? And Abraham, knowing what God has told him, says, The Lord will provide. He gets to the top of the mountain and he raises that knife and as he's at his knife raised, God says stop. And he looks over in the thicket and there is a lamb and he says, Jehovah Jireh. Now this is what that means for us. As fears come into our lives, it is easy to go through the terrible what ifs. It's easy to go down the road of worst case scenario. But we have to have faith that for those of us that are living according to the Lord, trusting in Him, He will provide. The second thing we see in this, not in the passage, but understanding trusting the Lord, the results of trust, is not only fulfilled needs, but also real rest. It says He makes me lie down. Now, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how He makes us lie down. But the point is that He causes us to rest. I don't know whether you know this or not, but Americans are not getting enough sleep. People struggle with insomnia across the country. Seventy million Americans say they suffer from insomnia. Over 70 billion is lost every year because of insomnia. Sixty-four percent of teenagers blame poor school performance on a lack of sleep. Fifty percent of adults over the age of 65 say that they struggle with insomnia. Now, I know that some of you are cured of insomnia when you walk in this room on Sunday mornings. I understand that. But the truth is, most of us here are tired. Amen? I mean, I'm looking at you, all right? If you're not going to amen, I'll amen for you, all right? Most of us in this room are tired. In fact, Scripture is very clear that we are not to run ourselves ragged, that we are to rest in the Lord. Now, I know some people say, well, that means I just sit down for a minute. That's not what resting in the Lord means. In fact, one of the biggest sins I think the church is committing today is that we have people that are so busy doing other stuff that they're too tired to do the very things God called them to do. It's called the Sabbath principle. Now, I don't believe that the Sabbath principle means that you have to have 
a whole day set aside completely in society for rest. I think that's good. I think that's admirable. But I think the Sabbath principle, especially on this side of the cross in Jesus, means that we are to intentionally build into our lives times of rest and relaxation and renewal. In fact, some of you, the best thing you could do this afternoon, the most spiritual activity you could do is to go home and take a nap. Amen? You got that? Some of you husbands are leaning over to your wives and say, write that down real fast, all right? It's to take a nap. And some of you in this room need to be told it's okay not to be doing something every moment you're awake. Now, that doesn't mean you get three or four days off, but it means it's okay to take a break. One of the reasons that I think we don't take breaks enough or rest is because we build into our lives this idea that the world depends on us to keep turning. One of the things that always amazes me is that when I get sick and I'm out for two or three days, I come back to the office and everything is still going. You ever notice that? You ever been out of work for three or four days because of sick or something? You go back and, I mean, people miss you, but their work is still happening. We go to Brazil. I, I, you know, I, I spent... Ten days out of the country, and nobody seemed to care in America to slow down about that. The world doesn't need us as much as we think, and sometimes it's best just to relax. We trust in the Lord. He brings us real rest. He brings us anxiety relief. It says that He leads me beside quiet waters. That's a calm place. The Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. He brings complete restoration. My favorite part of this entire psalm is that beginning of the third verse where it says, He restores my soul. He makes it whole. And then it tells us at the end of that verse that He gives us true guidance in our lives. So we trust in the Lord. What we see is that He takes care of our needs. He gives us real rest. He gives us peace in the midst of turbulence. He restores everything about our lives. And then He gives us the path that we're to follow. I don't know about you, but in my life, when I get flustered by fear or things that are happening, the things that often break down in my life are that peace, are that assurance, is that direction. And God promises that if we will trust in Him, all that's taken care of. Here's the second thing. It comes out of verse 4. Not only must we trust the Lord, but we must refuse to become discouraged. We must refuse to become discouraged. Psalm 23, 4 is one of the most uh, well-known verses in all of Scripture. You can say it with me, right? It says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's one of those verses that we say that people hear, you hear. You hear it on secular TV shows that don't care a thing about the Lord. You hear it in churches. You hear it at funerals. You hear it all over the place. Whenever somebody's going through a difficult time, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And the truth is, it's a great verse for that. But we must understand that what God is saying here is that the only way we can make it through evil is through our personal relationship with Him, understanding who He is, and trusting Him to guide us through those darkest of moments in our lives. Here's an interesting thing about that verse is, in ancient Israel, there was actually a valley called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And it was a particular valley that shepherds would sometimes have to navigate their sheep through, in between seasons to guide them to the better places to graze and to find water. And in this particular valley of the shadow of death, that 
it was so dark that the only time light ever got to the bottom between the two massive rock establishments on each side was at high noon when the light would come straight down. But the rest of the time, the shepherd was literally leading his flock through pitch black darkness. And as he was leading them through that darkness, he had no idea what was on each side or in front or behind. But he says, as God is leading me through that, I will walk through that valley knowing that my Lord is taking me through. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he says the only reason we can trust that we can make it through are the three things that he gives us at the end of that verse, which is because God is with us. I mean, this morning as we sing about the majesty and glory and holiness and worthiness of our God, it is still amazing to me that He chooses to walk with me through every moment of my life. I was watching the evening news a couple of years ago, and uh, Katie Kirk, it was when she had just come on, and they were interviewing her about her life to kind of set the scene for her to be the news anchor on CBS. And they asked her about the most difficult moments in her life, and, and if you've ever known much about Katie Kirk, she lost a husband to to cancer and then shortly after that she lost another close relative to another disease and she said i I was watching this interview and you know it was one of those barbara walters kind of moments where she was getting kind of teary-eyed and she said i just wish i had someone i could talk with while i went through that time in my life and everything in me wanted to write her a letter or give her a call. I'm sure that they would have let me through just, you know, right away. Call the CBS switchboard. I need to talk to Katie. You just put me through. And just say, I have someone that walks with me through every moment of my life. He says he's with me. And then he says his rod and his staff, they comfort me. The rod was the offensive weapon. Animals came along. He, they would take the rod and jab it into the animal until it left or was injured to the point it couldn't continue. The shepherd had the staff. That's the crook. You know, the the crook. Crook was used to bring sheep back that it straight away. You'd reach out and grab them and pull them back. It was also used at the end of the day to inspect each sheep. It was a personal thing to bring the sheep back unto them. And God says, basically, David says that God sometimes has to pull us back. So no matter what fear comes in your life, the truth is that we can refuse to become discouraged. A couple of things about our tragedy and crisis moments. First of all is they're inevitable and they're impartial. They come just all the time. And here's the second thing that I love and that I think this passage would want us to understand. is just because there's a crisis in our life doesn't mean that it's always bad. This week I saw an interesting description of the Chinese character for crisis. You know, Chinese letters are characters. They have thousands of characters that they use for words. And the Chinese character for crisis is a combination of two different characters. It's a combination of the character for danger and the character for opportunity. And so what they're saying is that any crisis we encounter is both an opportunity for danger and just a plain opportunity. And what we see here in this passage in Psalm 23 is that the shepherd leads us through those moments if we're willing to trust him. Here's the last thing. Not only do we need to trust the Lord and refuse to become discouraged, but here's the last thing. We must live for tomorrow. I know that the, in 
the world today, and even Jesus would say, live for today. And I agree with that, that Jesus' phrase, don't worry about tomorrow, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about here is that we must constantly live with an understanding of our future. Verse 5 says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What that basically means is, God, you're going to take care of my needs, but you're not just going to take care of my needs. You're going to give me an overabundance of what I need. The actual phrase here seems to be a banquet table being prepared. It could also mean the place where the shepherd found that was best for grazing and let the sheep go at their own will and eat until their heart or stomachs were content. The picture that I get here is of a large buffet or a Baptist potluck dinner, right? I mean, when you say the words, all you can eat, that's a good meal, right? Okay, it is for me. For y'all, you not apparently not. But for me, it's good. It says all you can eat. And it's basically like they've laid out the banquet table. He says, you anoint my head with oil. That was a divine kind of thing. It was also a healing thing. My cup overflows. What he says is, God, you've given me more than I could ever ask or imagine for. Not only have you taken care of me, not only will you take care of me, my needs are met and all that. But, God, you've done over and above what I could imagine you could do for me. Verse 6 says, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. The biblical picture there, the word picture literally is of a small animal animal that continues to nip at your heels that goodness and mercy are continually nipping at your heels i have a six pound pomeranian dog all right tiny little dog she is a lap dog and she is maturing in age um she's old for a dog and her eyesight is not as good as it once was her hearing is not as good as it once was, and her smell is not as good as it once was. And I don't mean she stinks. I mean she can't smell things, all right? And if you walk in our house right now, she has lost her ability to differentiate between people that she really knows and likes and people she doesn't know. And so when you walk in our house, she will nip at your heels until you pick her up, put her in your lap, and pet her. It's funny to watch Susan's dad because he's not a dog guy, really. And when he comes in, he will go down and sit there, and she will sit at the bottom and just bark and scratch and everything she can to get up in his lap and be recognized. God says in this passage that goodness and mercy is following our trail like a dog nipping at our heels. And then he says this last phrase. And I will dwell. That means live in. You, you know, that, that means take up residence. That means to be at home. You've been in houses before that are houses, and you've been in houses before that are homes, right? This means to take up home in the house of the Lord forever. The Apostle Paul would say in Romans 8.18 that, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that we will reveal in us. He says, no matter what junk I go through right now, because of what God is doing in my life, I will walk through it trusting Him. Because when I get through with this life, it's all going to be a shadow of how important I thought it was. In the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about living our lives without fear. And the truth is, 
that no matter what fear or circumstance comes in our lives, if you will follow these three steps, you'll make it through. If you trust the Lord completely, if you just look to Him and say that you're going to trust Him through those darkest parts of your life, refuse to become discouraged and you live with an idea of tomorrow. It's kind of like the example of a a child I read about this week named William Ferris. William Ferris was a seven-year-old boy, was a son of a missionary in West Africa. And as he was the son of a missionary in West Africa, he was outside his house one day, and there was some fire over near their house, and they had a thatch roof, and the wind sparked up the fire and threw a spark onto their roof, and immediately their house caught fire to the point they couldn't contain it. And so this seven-year-old boy, William Ferris, sat there outside with his mom and watched his house literally burn to the ground. And while he was watching his house burn to the ground, seven-year-old William Ferris began to say something that his mom didn't quite understand at first, but then she began to hear that it was a prayer that he was repeating to the Lord. A couple of days later, they were at a place and she heard her son repeat that prayer again. And about the fourth time she heard it, she decided she was going to write it down. Because it sounded like a psalm to her of somebody that was making it through a tough time. And this is what seven-year-old William Ferris wrote. He said, Through wind and rain, through fire and lava, the Lord will never leave you. Through earthquakes and floods, through changing sea levels and burning ash, the Lord will never leave you. If you love Him, He will bless you and He will give you many things. Who can stop the Lord? Who can chase a cheetah across the plains of Africa? The Lord He can. Who can stand on Mount Everest? Who can face a rhinoceros? Only the Lord. The Lord can give you sheep and goats and cows and ducks and chickens and dogs and cats. The Lord can give you anything He wants to. Who's as fast as a horse? Who can catch a blue whale? Who is brave enough to face a giant squid? Only the Lord. Just as Jesus died on the cross, so the Lord has done so. The Lord will never leave His people. The Bible is His Word. The Lord is a good leader. The Lord who loves you, He will not forsake His people. The end. I read that. I couldn't help but think of the fact that we have a God who looks to us and basically says, whatever difficulty may come, whatever trial may come your way, always remember that I love you. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. The end.